What does the United States Secret Service, a primitive tribe in the Amazon River Basin, and SWO all have in common? Stay tuned. We're going to talk about it today on No Sanity Required. Welcome to No Sanity Required from the Ministry of Snowbird Wilderness Outfitters, a podcast about the Bible, culture, and stories from around the globe. I was recently doing a Zoom call for uh, a a youth group. We're doing a lot of that these days, and I was speaking to a youth group, and uh, the format for this Zoom call was that the student pastor was doing an interview style, so he he sent me a few questions out, said, hey, here's, here's the things I want to talk to you about. Here's the basic flow of how we're going to do this. And he said, I want to uh, I want to give you a heads up so you can kind of put some thoughts together. And then I said, well, that's great, but let's also, you know, feel free to just kind of see where the conversation goes so that it's a little bit spontaneous and it doesn't feel like I've just planned everything out. And so we get into this conversation on this Zoom call, and he asks me, we get to a point, and he asks me, what is, I don't, I don't remember exactly how the question went. It, it went something like, what's the craziest story ever from SWO? Or what is the, something like that. Like, what's the craziest thing you've ever seen, ha- seen happen? And then I think he even said, uh, uh, tell, us, tell us two stories. The craziest thing that ever happened at SWO and the funniest thing or something like that. And, you know, there, and I think I told him, man, there are so many stories of people's life. I mean, we're writing a book. And it's probably going to be like episode one called No Sanity Required. And it's stories from the, you know, the, the story of SWO and the history of SWO. There's so many stories. And, and many of our listeners have stories that, that, that interface and intersect with SWO. But, um, but anyway, I was trying to think, okay, what's one that really stands out? And there are several that I often tell you. Many of you heard the, the podcast, the episode where we talked about Sunita and that's one that certainly stands out. But uh, there's this this story that always stands out. It comes to my mind. And I, I've got a cousin, and he works in the Secret Service. And at, at one point in his career, he was on the counter-assault team. And the counter-assault team, it's a, it's like – it's a dude job, man. It's like a man job. It's like what every, it's like you're, you, you tap into your inner Jason, your inner Jason born. And this is what you want to do with your life. You want to be on the counter assault team, or you want to be on seal team six, or you want to be Delta force, whatever. And so the, the, uh, the hostage rescue team in the, in the FBI, these elite forces that are sort of tip of the spear. So in the secret service, a lot of what those guys do seems to have a mundane nature to it. And, so the counter assault team, that's, that's where the action's at, you know, cool training and, and, uh, their job is that if there is an attack on the president, they're, they're responsible for the counter attack. So while the men closest to him are getting him on the ground and covering him up, um, getting him to safety, the counter assault team rolls out and goes on the offensive. They're the reactionary force. They're like a quick reactionary force. So you've got, uh, so like it, when you see the president's motorcade, and there's his limo or his suburban or whatever. And then you'll see two or three suburbans behind it. And and one or two of those is the counter assault team. They, they're ready to go to war and they're just riding the motorcade. And then, you know, so it, anyway, it's, I remember talking to my cousin during one of the inaugurations. It might have been Obama's first uh, inauguration or maybe it was one of the Bush inaugurations. And I said it was 
uh, right before the inauguration, I said, hey, man, I'm going to be looking for you. It was this game we would play because I could never find him because those guys stay out of sight. And he was like, later, he told me where he was at. And I was like, oh, my goodness, that's crazy. He was like right there hiding in plain sight. And, uh, and I remember another time he sent me a picture. He was at the mall in D.C. and he was undercover. And he was he had he had gotten in the middle of the crowd, and I forget what these people were marching on D.C. for. You know, somebody's marching there about every week. Somebody's rioting or not rioting, uh, picketing. You know, whatever you call it, where they're they're out there marching around with their signs and stuff. And there's this I forget what it was, but there's I mean, hundred thousand people out there, and he's in the middle of the crowd, and he had this big huge beard. And his shaggy hair, he doesn't look like a Secret Service agent. You know, he looks more like a special operator. And so, and he's wearing like, he's dressed almost like a homeless dude. The problem is he's this thick, jacked up dude. So he, he's, <laughs> he's like jacked. So he's not homeless, obviously, obviously, but he's wearing like this thick winter coat and he's got this big beard and he's right in the middle of the crowd and he takes a selfie with all these like screaming faced people around him. And he's like grinning, cheesing at the camera. It's pretty awesome. So it's, it's really cool having a, a close family member that's in that type of a position. Cause there's just always good stories. I love getting together with him, hanging out and talking. He always tells me the craziest stories. And so one of the, the I got some neat phone calls from him down through the years. I had, uh, uh, like he called me, uh, one time he was mountain biking with President Bush. President Bush was the second President Bush, uh, W. He was uh, an avid mountain biker. And so in the 2008, uh, the Beijing Olympics, they're over there. The president's making an appearance, and they went mountain biking. And so my cousin calls me from the mountain biking park, the Olympic mountain biking course. They were going out riding with the president and him and his team, you know, and He's like, I'm, I'm sitting here for a minute. That, that we're waiting for everybody to kind of link back up. And he said, I thought you'd get a kick out of it because I like to, I'm a mountain biker. I like to ride. And so he called me. For, so that was a cool call. I can hear the chatter in the background. It's like the president and his team coming up, you know, to where my cousin's at. And then another time I get this, this message. It's like a jumbled call on my phone and I go to take it. And, it, and it's like, hey, you have a call from Air Force One this call will be monitored or something like that. And I'm like, Oh, that's pretty cool. And then my cousin was calling me from air force one. So that's cool. Like getting a call from the president's mountain biking, you know, excursion, getting a call from air force one. So that's really cool. And so I had somebody ask me one time, what's the coolest phone call you ever got? And I told that story and those are top of the list, but the coolest phone call I ever got, other than a call from one of my kids or, you know, uh, something like that was we had, we had a guy and many of you know him. We had a guy named Bobby that worked at snowbird for several years and he's now an overseas worker and he stayed connected kind of based out of SWO and red Oak. And back in the uh, late 2000, so I want to say 2007, somewhere between 2007, 2008, um, Bobby was working with an indigenous tribe in the Amazon river basin. This tribe was called the Yamanawa and they were an unreached people group. And Bobby was part of a team that four snowbird people, four SWO folks went and joined this team called the extreme team. The extreme team was led by uh, a guy named Jay Talaferro, who's a good friend. And their, their goal was to do indigenous jungle missions sort of old school meets new school. So like instead of going into the jungle and setting up a little 
mission station. It was go live among these nomadic, native, tribal, aboriginal type people, live among them for three, four weeks at a time, and then come out and resupply and kind of get, you know, get refreshed and then go back in. So they're nomadic. So it was fine for you to kind of come and go a little bit. And so our, our guys would get, so what we do, our guys, so like Bobby was one, we had Bobby, Corey, LJ, and Katie, and each of them partnered up or paired up with an indigenous Central American, a Latin American, um, or South American rather, uh, either Central or South American. And so, Bobby's partner was a guy named Ephraim. He was Colombian. And the two of them uh, had targeted this group of people called the Yamanawa. And these people groups would all live along either the Amazon River or some tributary of the Amazon, some other river that fed the Amazon. And so they would they would go by foot. They would locate the tribe. Sometimes it would take two or three weeks to find the tribe. They would live with them for a month. And then they would come out, jump on the river, and come back to the port city called Puerto Maldonado. And they would get there, and they had we had a house rented that was a base of operation. They would spend two or three weeks at the house, get good food, get medical checks, stuff like that. Because they're living, you know, these indigenous people could drink the water, could eat the food, could, you know, could, the, but, uh, you know, your body's not used to that. There's danger of of parasites and diseases and dysentery and things like that. So these guys kind of go in and out uh, with this people group. And so Bobby's group was the the Yamanawa. I, mean, I think Corey's group was the Tigre Quechua, which was a Quechuan group of people along the Tigre River. So Bobby, uh, on one of these one of these trips back in to meet back up with the Yamanawa, the, the people group he was staying with, there's about 500 people in the Yamanawa people group. And he was kind of running with one group of them, one small group of them. And they're fairly nomadic. They move around the jungle, chasing game, shooting, killing what they eat and, and living off the land. And so on his way in, he gets captured by, I want to say an Ashinika chief, but I don't think this guy was a Shinika. I think it was a different tribe, but this guy captured these guys, they get Bobby and Ephraim and they, and they take, they abduct them. Basically they, they make them their prisoners. Well, Bobby had a sat phone. We, we, he had a sat phone for emergencies because he would go three or four weeks at a time and there's no way to communicate with him. But in an emergency, that sat phone, he could use it. And even if you had to get a helicopter in there or something, you could. And so, uh, Bobby, um, calls me one Sunday morning. So, so this is where secret service comes in as cool as those calls are. Um, when people ask me, what's the coolest phone call you ever had? This to me is the most intense phone call um, I've ever had one of them. Um, we'll talk about some more when we give you an update on our brother B in a, in an episode here in a couple of weeks. But this phone call at this time was the most intense phone call I'd ever gotten. I get a call and it's Bobby on the other line, uh, other end of the line. And, and he's on the sat phone. And I said, what are you doing? And he said, well, he starts to tell me how he's been abducted. He said, yeah, this guy, he's got us. He's so-and-so. He's a chief. You can actually look this dude up. I can't remember his name, but you can look him up. I looked him up on Google. Like there's literally Google images because this guy became sort of the face of the native movement or the the native people when there was like an anti, it was like an environmental effort in that part of the world against big oil or against logging. I don't remember. But anyway, this guy was one of the, there's pictures of this guy and he's like missing an eye where he's been from, from like a tribal war. Um, he's got scars on his face. He's a legit native chieftain and he's captured Bobby and Bobby said, I think they're going to kill us. 
And, uh, and he's almost like, you know, nonchalant about it. And so this guy, Bobby says, this guy wanted to speak to my chief. I told him I was from the North and he wanted to speak to my chief and he knows about phones because of the, the oil companies that are, that are working there in the jungle. And he's seen, he's seen these oil executives come in and out in airplanes. And he's like, there are these, there are these, this is another story that maybe I'll tell another time about Corey, one of our other guys, but there's, I mean, you got airstrips. They land planes out there in the middle of the jungle where they're where they're drilling for oil and stuff like that. And so, <laughs> um, so this guy knows what a phone is. So I have this. So I have this conversation with this this chief, this this uh, Aboriginal Peruvian chief, about why he should spare Bobby. And I asked him what he wanted, and he said they needed sixteen gauge shotgun shells. They needed. Uh, flour and sugar. And there were some other things I can't remember, but I asked Bobby, I was like, can we get that stuff up river to them from Puerto Maldonado? Bobby said, yeah, we can get that stuff to them. So I told him if you, if you will spare the lives of my friends, Bobby and Ephraim, then we will bring, bring your people the supplies that you've requested. And we did, man, we got that stuff loaded up on a boat and it's a, it took a week or two to, to motor that thing up the river. But, but then the phone call gets dropped and I'm for three weeks, I'm just praying. We're praying. We don't know what's happened. We hadn't heard from Bobby. This goes for like three weeks. At one point, Bobby's mom calls me and says, have you heard from Bobby? And I was like, uh, not in a couple of weeks. <laughs> really funny. I didn't want to tell her what had happened until we had some answers. And so, and she later told me she was glad I didn't tell her. She would have worried to death. But a few weeks later, I get a call from Bobby. He had made it back to Puerto Maldonado. He had made it to the Yamanawa, spent three or four weeks with him, and then came back out. And what happened that day is after after the call got dropped, the chief was going to kind of like consider it and think about it and keep Bobby and Ephraim captive for a little while. And then the chief got drunk and passed out <clears throat> because that's pretty common. They 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 drink this fermented yucca plant. Um, it's it's commonplace there. And so he gets drunk, passes out, and a couple of guys let Bobby and Ephraim go. They're like, you got to get out of here. This dude wakes up. He's probably going to kill you. So they got out of there, and, and they made it. But So that's a crazy story. But in the end, the, the cool part of the story to me is that in the end, the Yamanawa people group, not who this chief was a part of, but the Yamanawa, the people that Bobby is working with, they embraced the gospel. As a people group, they have now been evangelized. They're no longer unengaged, unreached. Um, it's pretty incredible what, what happened there. And so they even have, have, there's literacy there now. Many of them can read Wycliffe Bible translators worked to get, uh, to get the Bible translated into their language portion of it, portions of it. And so pretty cool story. But yeah, when people ask me about the like crazy slow stories, that's one of them. But, but also when someone, I, I, once in a while I've had somebody say, what's the craziest phone call you ever got? And I think that's it. That's the one. So pretty cool hearing from air force one. Pretty intense hearing from a third world chief. So, you know, just some, some days are, are world ruler days. Yeah. <laughs> some days you talk to chieftains and, and presidents and stuff like that. So anyway, I hope you got a kick out of it and enjoyed that, uh, that story. But, but in the end, I hope the positive message is, man, people are doing the work of getting the gospel to hard places and where that's happening. SWO always wants to be a part of it. And, uh, and maybe, I don't know, man, maybe the Lord will use this story as you hear it to trigger something in you that says, I want to take the gospel to the nations. I want to be a part of a story like that. And I think that would be awesome. So thanks for joining and we'll catch you in an episode real soon. 
Thanks for listening to No Sanity Required. Please take a moment to subscribe and leave a rating. It really helps. Visit us at SWOutfitters.com to see all of our programming and resources. And we'll see you next week on No Sanity Required.